Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. A couple of quick announcements to access your CME accreditation for today. The code is on the wall, but it's small k y x five to text that in to um, to get your credits. Um, we're delighted today to have Bill Taylor here from Boston and to introduce him, and there are no conflicts of interest to declare, to introduce him is Elliot Fisher. Elliot is the John E. Wenberg Distinguished Professor of um, Health Policy, of Medicine, and of Community and Family Medicine. We're delighted that Jack is actually here with us also this morning. Um, Elliot also is the Director, of course, of the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. He's going to introduce today's speaker. Thanks, Rich, and thank you for being here, Jack. Great to have you here. What fun. This is an incredible treat for me. So when I was a third-year medical student on my first medicine clerkship, first month of my medicine clerkship, Bill Taylor was my attending. He was in his, like, second year of being an instructor at Harvard Medical School. I had an amazing month with Bill. Um, I learned So for years, um, we had bumper stickers and hats, and we have two hats left at the Dartmouth Institute uh, that say support the null hypothesis. And as one of the early iconoclasts, um, like Jack, I wanted to give Bill <laughs> and welcome you to the podium to talk. Wow. Well, I can never do justice to that. 
<laughs> thank you so much, Elliot. Uh, thank you, Dr. Rothstein, as well. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks to Dr. Kiefer for inviting me. Thanks to all of you for being here. I'm used to Grand Rounds where people sit all the way up in the back and all these seats are empty, so it's really particularly nice to be I'm actually thrilled to be here. It, I haven't been here before, but it feels like I'm coming home. You know, I, I, I realize that I've actually, you don't realize this, but you're a distance learning university, right? I've been learning from the people here, uh, especially Elliot Fisher and uh, Dr. Wenberg and, and my hero, Gil Welch, who I just got to meet, who's sitting in the front row. These are people who've changed my life and changed the way I look at what I do and have improved what I do and how I teach. And so to get to be here with these people and with all of you who've have incredibly busy lives and have trusted me with, uh, you know, with what's going to happen in the next 50 minutes or so is just an honor and a total pleasure. So I, I just couldn't be happier. Uh, and despite the fact that you had heard an introduction that uh, doesn't really sound too much like who I am, I'm going to try to do justice to some of that and, uh, and take you through some of the data. I don't usually put all those letters after my name, but I have up there that I'm a fellow of the American College of Preventive Medicine to let you know that I really do believe deeply in prevention. I just believe in doing it in an intelligent way. And I'm going to raise some questions for you, as, as Elliot already mentioned, and as the uh, uh, slide already says, uh, and get right to it. I do have no conflicts of interest, but I do have a point of view, as there's everybody who gets up here and talks to you, but I think you've already heard enough about that that I don't have to say any more. And, and where am I going with this? Uh, I, I'm going to go right to what my conclusion is, where I hope to take you by looking at, at the evidence. And I'm going to say that we all have a sense of what we think about statins for primary prevention, and I'm going to suggest to you that that evidence base is much more flimsy than we're led to believe. Uh, I'm talking about primary prevention. I believe in statins. I make sure that my patients who had a myocardial infarction take a statin. These are miracle drugs. The way they were developed, the science behind them is overwhelmingly powerfully uh, compelling. And I think if you've had a myocardial infarction, you should do all you can to be on a statin. It's likely to make you live longer. It's likely to make it, you're less likely to have a recurrent event. These drugs are phenomenal. But what I'm talking about is now giving these drugs to people who are healthy, or where we don't have any reason to think that they have coronary disease. That's where I'm going to focus my, my talk. And I think that, that that's where we need to, to look. That evidence is less strong than we're led to believe especially for women. And to drive home the point about how little evidence there is to support what we're doing, I'm going to talk specifically about the evidence that's out there for women. The, the recent recommendations, and many of you are familiar with them, I, I, you've heard too much about me. Let me hear a little about you. How many of you uh, prescribe statins? How many of you are primary care doctors? How many of you are members of the faculty who are not primary care doctors? Lots and lots. How many of you are other kinds of health professionals? Great. Medical students. Wow. Residents and fellows. Even look at that. You guys got those back seats. <laughs> Great. So you can see this is a relevant topic for a lot of the people in the room. Speculation, not evidence. You're familiar. Statin prescribers, you're familiar. In 2015, not that long ago, American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association came out with new recommendations about what to do about statins. And the big push was this is what's evidence-based. And that's why they went away with the treat to gold and you know, treat with low intensity for this and high intensity for that. That was supposed to be telling us what to do on the basis of the evidence. 
That was 2015. Then the biggest study, the best study in, in primary prevention came out, this HOPE 3 in 2016 after those recommendations, and then the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force put it all together in a different way and said, wait a minute about the risk calculator and so on. So we have these experts telling us exactly what to do about statins uh, and leaving out this emphasis on the fact that most of this stuff comes from people with multiple risk factors. So we're going to focus. Have you ever met somebody who doesn't have multiple risk factors? Anybody ever, you know, seen in your practice who doesn't happen to have diabetes and smoke cigarettes and hypertension and so on? I'm going to focus on those people because they somehow get neglected. I'm also going to take the sort of heretical stance that the question that has been the focus of these two big sets of guidelines is the wrong question that the big question has been, well, what level of 10-year risk of developing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is the evidence strong enough that we can say these people ought to take a statin? That's not the right question. The right question is, for the patient in front of you, are the benefits of statins greater than the harms? Right? And that one, somehow, it disappears entirely, because if you assume that statins are beneficial and you assume that they don't make any trouble, you would give them to everybody except for the issue of cost, which I'm not going to touch until my just about last slide, because I'm going to leave it to you to figure out how that might factor into this whole thing, because we're only going to have to real talk about the question of, for the individual patient, benefit and harm, because I don't think anybody would disagree that our job is to give patients things where there's more benefit than harm. And if that's not the case, we don't even have to get to cost. We have no business. We have Our job is to protect our patients from everything else, and that's why Gil Welsh is such a hero, that he stood up and said, if this is not going to do more good than harm for you, you're better off not having it. That should be fundamental to what we do. Here's how that you get to that benefit and risk thing with statins. I'm going to contend for you that for many people, and you can see where I'm going for this, especially for women, especially for people who don't have multiple risk factors, the magnitude of the benefit that these people might get from statins is so small, as best we can imagine what it might be, that it would not take very much, in fact, it would take very little in the way of concern about harm or risk to make it a bad bargain. So I'm going to use a case as a way of highlighting that. Guess what? It's a case of somebody who doesn't have any risk factors other than being a 67-year-old woman, which we don't consider a risk factor, even though Age and sex are the biggest predictors of who's going to get coronary disease. We're all you know, living under the sword of Damocles of that, even if we are like her. No tobacco, no diabetes, no clinically evident heart disease. A blood pressure that many people somehow look as, as too high, even though the JNC8 says that this is a perfectly acceptable one. Don't get me started on where JNC9 is likely to take us. Her cholesterol is 293, but that's okay because most of the reason she has such a high cholesterol is because she has a really generous level of HDL. And uh, if you measure her LDL, it's 166. And the question is, should she get a statin? So if you put her into that famous risk calculator from the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart. How many of you use this risk calculator? Do you actually plug people in? That's a huge number of you for those who are sitting in the front and didn't turn your head. So if you use that calculator, you plug her in, you get an 8.3% 10-year risk that she's getting a heart disease and stroke. If, you, if she's like my patients when you look at this, you get 8.3. Wow, that sounds like, you know, that's pretty dangerous, right? We'll talk about it. Then it says this. I, this is just cut and pasted from that website. It says, on the basis of your age, calculated risk, if you're above 7.5%, you should be on a moderate 
to high-intensity statin. This is right from the ACC AHA. Hasn't changed since 2015. This is what they tell us to do. They also say, right up there in the same way, the same kind of bullet point as big as that, they also quote the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. <laughs> and, they, and they say, don't, by the way, don't take an aspirin. Now, I don't want to get into the aspirin thing, but I just want to point out that they're telling you that the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is so trustworthy that they'll put it right there next to what they tell you to do about a statin. Now, so that was 2015, it's today. This is what's on their website, but this came about in 2015. Then 2016, in November, the U.S. Preventive Task Force comes along and says, wait a minute, that risk calculator, you know, we're not so sure. It was based on old populations, and it gives you too high a risk. We don't like that. So instead of 7.5%, where we think there's good evidence that you ought to do something, we're going to jack it up to 10%. Above 10%, they say, go ahead and give people a statin. They didn't ask again about benefits and risks. They asked this thing about where did they think the evidence was convincing enough that statins might do some good. And so for her, this doesn't even apply to her. But for other people who have one or more risk factors, which she doesn't have, they say in that level of risk between 7.5 and 10, pretty flimsy evidence, C recommendation. Remember what that means. The task force says A recommendation, strong evidence you ought to do it. B recommendation, good, recommend, good evidence you ought to do it. C, and not so much, we're not so sure, it's sort of up to you, we can't tell. They would give it a C if she had risk factors. But she doesn't. She doesn't even get on their, their radar screen as somebody to get a statin. And so you've got the, the uh, American College of Cardiology, AHA, say give her, not just give her a statin, give her a high, you know, moderate to high dose statin. Quoting the task force saying, believe them about aspirin, and then you get the task force saying, don't touch her with a statin. So the show of hands, if you're kind enough to want to do it, do you give her a statin? Do you not give her a statin? Do you like to know a little more? Because those of you who are all set could probably leave right now. <laughs> um, so there's a background paper about the evidence that the task force went through and presented us, you know, their thinking about how do they get to this point to tell us what to do. And I'm going <clears> to <throat> mention that because that's where the evidence lives. They found 19 trials, but all of the trials were with people at elevated risk. She wouldn't have got into any of them, which I'm going to belabor a little bit. What about this thing about women? Right, because most of the studies, I mean, some of us are old enough, we grew up in an era, all the studies were done on middle-aged white men. All the studies, right? That's all the lipid work was originally done to middle-aged white men. And it wasn't until the last, you know, 10, 15 years, maybe 20, that they started to get some women in the study. So what about this issue? Do women get the same benefit as men? I mean, are women just, you know, men with certain changes in their genitals? Or, I mean, wait a minute, women have a different epidemiology of heart disease. Is, is it really true that statins behave the same for women as men? What, what, women are the same as men? I mean, what, what, what are estrogens and testosterone and all that made of, right? It turns out that cholesterol is not just this evil thing that's plugging up your arteries. It's doing some other stuff. You know, it's doing the membranes of all your, you know, the myelin sheaths in your body and some other things that you might, I mean, why, did, why do we evolve in a certain way where it's really hard to change your cholesterol with your diet or any other way? Why is it so determined by your genes and so on? I don't know the answer to these things, but it would at least make you wonder, can you just assume that if you do all this stuff on middle-aged white men that the same stuff applies to women? That stuff comes out now because we finally have some trials that include some women. But out of the 19 trials, 
Only seven of them were done in such a way that you could parse the results by subgroup and see you know, what's going on. Are old people benefiting different than young people? Are, people of a, you know, are white people different from people with other ethnicities? You, know, you could do those kind of subgroup analyses, but two of the seven didn't look by sex. So we're down to five. Here are the five studies quickly gone through. One is conveniently named because it rolls off the tongue. AFCAPS, TEXCAPS, say that 10 times fast. 6,600 people, but look at this, they got 15% women. At least there were some women. They were starting to include women in the trials. But this T wouldn't have gotten in because you had to have a low HDL. But this, these studies, I don't want to get too deeply in this point, but they're designed by drug companies, right? And, and they have a moral responsibility. We always cast dispersions on drug companies and say they're unethical and we don't trust them. You can trust them. They have a moral responsibility to return a profit to their shareholders. They do. I mean, it's a, for your patients you know, might have stock in those companies, and, and the ethical responsibility is to return a, a profit to them. And so they do things like say, gee, this is a great market because there are zillions of people with that heart disease. If we can find a whole group of them, we can take our drug every day. That's what we ought to be doing. So what about people with low HDL? So they do a study where they fund and say, you know, uh, can we find a market there? That's their job. That's the question they ask, but it wouldn't apply to Ms. T. She doesn't have a low HDL. She wouldn't have got into that study. MEGA, the Japanese were curious because the epidemiology of coronary disease is so different in Asia, especially in Japan, that they were wondering, does all this statin work in the United States and Europe translate to the Japanese population? So they did a study there. But it's a study that's very hard to interpret because in addition to giving people a statin, they gave them a high-intensity dietary program. So we're not really sure what to make of it. But we're certainly sure that Ms. T wouldn't have gotten into that trial. She wouldn't have gotten into ASCOT LLA, one of these con uh, cleverly designed two-by-two two factorial designs. They were doing a big hypertension study. They said, gee, we can do two for the price of one. We can take some of the people who are randomized to the active blood pressure uh, medication and also randomize them to a statin or not. And we can take people in the placebo group and randomize them to a statin or not and see what's going on. But you had to have more than two risk factors to get in. Why does that matter? because you're going to look at people who have higher risk because that way you're going to be able to count events and see whether you could do anything. But Ms. T and all the other people like her who don't have multiple risk factors, they're at lower risk, so they inherently have a lower possibility of getting a benefit. If they have a one in a thousand chance to make up a very small number of having an event, when you reduce that, the, uh, the only benefit they can have is something less than one in a thousand. That would be the most they could get if you could wipe out their chance of getting coronary disease. So as the risk goes down, the opportunity for benefit goes down. Here's Jupiter, which is very hard to know what to make of and really doesn't apply to her. You had to have a low LDL in order to get in, but you had to have a high C-reactive protein. And the results of Jupiter are unbelievable. They had to stop the study after two years because they were having, uh, well, they were, they were showing remarkable benefits in different groups. For women, some of the, group, some of the ways you would parse the results showed benefit, others didn't. Uh, show benefit, maybe it was because of low power, maybe it was wasn't working. They had to have almost 18,000 people in order to do this. So if there's a benefit there, even a tiny one, they'd be able to find it. And, and I don't know what to make of Jupiter. Uh, and, and we could talk about whether, you know, they, they advertise C-reactive protein you ought to measure because it's just as good a predictor as cholesterol. 
What they don't tell you is cholesterol is not such a great predictor, right? <laughs> and then, and then, and then the, the new one, the one that came out in, in 2016, huge study, 18, uh, I'm sorry, almost 13,000 people and half of them were women, right? Again, you had to have uh, more than one risk factor because he didn't have that. What does it mean when you see a study where it takes 12 or 13,000 people who are followed for six years. You know uh, right away what that means. It can't be a very big effect if it takes six years studying almost 13,000 people to try to find something. That, that on its face should tell us something. These people did a power calculation because they didn't want to waste their time and effort to do the study. That is a huge message. So what do we find? Only five trials. Very heterogeneous, right? Whether you're from Japan or you have multiple risk factors, or you have hypertension and other things. You can't really intellectually combine those, which is very important with this idea of meta-analysis. You know, Gil Welch is one of my heroes. Another one of my heroes is Alvin Feinstein, who's no longer with us, a phenomenal clinical epidemiologist from Yale. And Alvin was fond of being, uh, uh, he was quite an iconoclast, was fabulous with the language, and he said, Meta-analysis is to analysis as metaphysics is to physics, <laughs> right? And there's a lot of trouble there about, about doing this. But, but anyhow, it would be really hard to do meta-analysis with trials that are, that are so heterogeneous. And, and as I've sort of nailed repeatedly, and I think you've gotten that message, none of it applies to her. Bear with me. I'm going to take you through some of this HOPE 3 data so you can see the kind of stuff that goes on in these trials. I know you would, no, no way, would, if I were sitting there, there's no way I could stay awake if I went through all five trials and what do they show and that, but this is the kind of thing that goes on. So uh, if you look at the hazard ratio, the hazard ratio, as you know, uh, is an approximation of relative risk, which is a concept uh, with which you're familiar. Yeah, you can barely see it. So if we look for men, the hazard ratio is 0.72. So that means if, if the hazard ratio were 0.7, that would mean there's a 30% reduction in, in the event rate. If you compare the 5.6% of men who after six years, only 5.6% of men in the, we're talking primary prevention here. These are men who don't have coronary disease. Only, even though they're men at high risk, only 5.6% of them after six years had an event. And it's a combined endpoint. Look up there, cardiovascular death, MI, stroke, my pointer, but you, you can see it up at the top. When you have a combined endpoint, you know what that means. That means that they couldn't get enough individual events to be able to count, and they had to pack stuff together to try to get enough events to say something's going on. So right away, that's a little something to, to factor in as you, as you look at these results. But those things went down by almost 30% in the men. And you can see the 95% confidence interval, 0 0.59 to 0.87. You remember what that means. That means if you... Theoretically, make up this idea in your mind that there's a population of men out there, and you're going to sample from that population and you get results like this. You want to make an inference back about that population, because we don't, I mean, it's nice that they help these particular men, but that's not really our responsibility. What's our responsibility is the patient in front of us. So we have to go through this intellectual process where we say, is our patient enough like the patients from which this popular sample came so we can make an inference back about the population? Because if that's like our patient, now we have more information about what to do with her, right? That's the process. 
And here, the idea statistically is if you drew random samples over and over again of this size from a, a, an infinitely large population, on average, 95% of the time, well, our best guess from having done this once is that the results we would get would form a distribution and it would go in the 95% confidence interval you know, from 0.59 to 0.87. And the important thing, since we're, we unthinkingly just assume that science is based on a P of 0.05 and that we can reject the null hypothesis, thank you so much for the hat, Elliot, that we can reject the null hypothesis of P of 0.05, a judgment, not science, not evidence, judgment. We arbitrarily subject, we turn over our judgment to this P of 0.05 because we're so troubled by this way of thinking that we don't trust it and we're a little concerned about it. So we say, okay, if it's a P less than 0.05, we believe it. So here for men, we believe it. And how do we know we believe it? We believe it because that 0.59 to 0.87 says that for, with the 95% confidence, we're going to exclude one. One would be the situation if there's no difference. Right? One means the same number of events would be happening in the intervention of the control group. We can exclude one if we use that rule of P less than 0.05 and say, great, men seem to benefit. Almost a 30% reduction in these combined endpoints of cardiovascular death, MI, and stroke that took six years to find by you know, looking at, uh, you can see 3,400 plus 3,400, you know, almost 7,000 men it took to be able to find this. But it, it's, you know, it looks pretty reasonable. Men benefit. What about women? So you go over there to that hazard ratio of 0.82. Here we go, sort of. Can that show anything? Hazard ratio of 0.82. If the hazard ratio of 0.8, that would mean there's a 20% reduction. But you can see the confidence interval goes from 0.64 to 1.06. What does that mean? Hey, can I, can I work a pointer on that? Oh, look. Do you see that? Oh, good. Thank you. Sorry about that. So here it is, 0.64 to 1.06. What does that mean? It means if you do that thing with repeatedly sampling from that population, some of the time within that 95% confidence interval, one is included. That means if you did a p-value, I didn't show you the p-value, but the p is going to be greater than 0.05. And by the standard thing that we use, we would say, ah, oh, that could be chance. Could be. I mean, maybe it's a real effect. If it's a real effect, the reason they didn't show it, why didn't they show it? They didn't show it because they didn't have sufficient power. They didn't have sufficient power. How many women are, did they study for six years? These women with multiple risk factors. You got 3,000 here, you got 3,000. 6,000 women studied for six years, and either it doesn't work by our standard criterion, or they didn't have enough women to find it. And, the, and what they looked for was not cardiovascular death, certainly didn't look at total mortality. They looked at cardiovascular death, they looked at myocardial infarction, they looked at stroke, but they combined them to try to get enough events, and they still couldn't show it. So either it doesn't work, which I don't believe, by the way. I think it works. But I think it works very little, right? Not a little enough that you couldn't even show it with a study this big and this long. That's what they found. And each of these studies, they're not going to go through laboriously, every one of them. But they keep coming up with the same thing. The absolute risk, you know, that sounds pretty big, almost a 20% reduction risk. This sounds huge, right? Almost a 30% reduction risk. But what's the real reduction in risk? The real reduction in risk is how much it went down. The women went down from... 3.9%. If, if you left these women alone, just gave them a placebo. And by the way, these are volunteers for a study, right? Who are healthier than people. They always do better than people who didn't volunteer. Plus, the studies all have a run-in period. What is that? They take the first few weeks and they tell them to do some stuff. 
And if they don't do it, they send them home. They don't include them in the study. So these are women who volunteered for a study who are healthier than the patients in your office, and then they excluded the ones who wouldn't do what they're supposed to do. They're healthier than even than the people who volunteer, because people who comply always do better than people who don't comply, because they have other habits that make them do better. So in that group, they still only, only Sorry with this pointer in my clothes, but only 4% only of them would have had event anyhow. It goes all the way down from 3.9 to 3.3, which all of a sudden doesn't sound quite as dramatic as a 20% reduction in risk. It's true, you know, 3.3 is 20% lower than 3.9, but it's a way of presenting the results that looks much more convincing uh, than it actually is. Look at this. This is this Stephen Colbert would have had a field day with this. This is unbelievable. I mean, this is in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is Hope Three. I'm sorry to get so agitated. I know I can't. So, I sound like somebody who can't be believed. You know, I'm not the like. This is the science, and I'm going to tell you the story. I, mean, I I just can't contain myself. This is unbelievable. This is this in the in the lower left part of this in the in the vertical axis, cumulative hazard ratio. This is what you would expect. I'm sorry. Cumulative hazard rate. And think of hazard as events. It's complicated because people go into trials at different times, and so they're in for different lengths. And statistically, you have to deal with it a different way. And this word hazard, which confuses a lot of us, think of it like the, the events. And, 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 the, and the percentage having events you know, can go all the way down from zero uh, up to 100. So the, you know, from the, you know, my pointer, you know, from zero here up to 1.0. This is the standard way of showing it, and this is the number of years in the trial, and down at the bottom is how many participants were in for that number of years. And this graph, in this, the, the lower left graph, are the results. And if you do what I did, and you take a magnifying glass, <laughs> and you look at this part over here, you still can't, you can hardly see that there were any events. And you certainly can't see is there any difference between the intervention group and the control group. So they didn't take a magnifying glass. They took a microscope. <laughs> and they blew it. I mean, look at the scale. It's 0 0.005, 0 0.010, 0 0.0. I mean, this is unbelievable. And yet, you know, most of us thumb through the, you know, we, what do we do? We look at the cover, right? And we see what the studies were. And we think, oh, damn, that, that looks important. I better go look at that. But we don't have time to really read it in depth. So we thumb through, you know, we read the abstract. In fact, we probably read the next to the last sentence of the conclusion. The one, we get you away from the one that says and more study is needed. You want to like, like, what's the real thing here, right? But if we really have time, you know, we're going to thumb through it and look. And, and we look, oh my gosh, look at this. The placebo group, that all this trouble happened to them. And the resuvastatin group, they did better. Wow. You know, next thing. Now I know resuvastatin works. Look at this. 6,000 people you know, started out in the study in the placebo group and 6,000 in the resuvastatin group. By here, by year two, three, you still have 6,000 people in each group. And look at the difference between the two groups when you look at it under the microscope. Right In the first few years, nothing's happening. But then in the next few years, maybe something's happening. This starts to maybe get a little separate. Maybe. This is again under the microscope. I mean, look at the difference in, in, in the scale of, of what's happening. And then out here, when you finally have nobody left in the study, instead of 12,000 people, there are 500 in each group, something really weird happened, right? The resuvastatin, all of a sudden, these little steps, those are the events happening. All of a sudden, the placebo people are getting events. What's that about? 
well, there'd be huge confidence intervals around that because that's either something going on or the rule of small numbers, right? I mean, there are so few people and now there are a few events. Maybe something very important is happening. There is, it always happens when you get information from a study. It generates more questions than it does answers. But this is taken like a big answer. Now we know, you know, statins save lives for uh, people in, in primary prevention, men and women. Even though when you look separately for women, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But if it does, look at the magnitude of what's going on under the microscope. That's what, we, that's what I took home uh, from HOPE 3. And, and of course, I leave it to you what, what you're going to take home. Uh, what about all-head LLT? I'm now taking you back from 2016, when, when uh, HOPE 3 came out, to 2002. In 2002, Important questions were raised about cholesterol reduction. Before statins, repeatedly, all these cholesterol reduction studies from the very first one, the clofibrate World Health Organization study from the 60s, they kept showing the same thing, that if you lowered cholesterol, you would lower non-fatal MIs. From, I mean, to prove the lipid hypothesis, before that, everybody wondered, you know, is it really causally related to... To outcome, and that's pretty powerful. You lower the rate of M in white middle-aged men, who were all anybody looked at. But you think that's the end of the story? It's not the end of the story because in that clofibrate trial, although the MIs came down, the total deaths went up. Well, that isn't really such a great idea. You know, you can less likely to die of coronary disease, maybe, but you know, this drug could kill you. A statistically significant increase in deaths. So after that, people were really worried. If we lower the cholesterol, is that okay? You know, there, what about non-coronary non causes of death? And it was really hard to figure out. They parsed it very carefully at the WHO clofibrate study, and they said, it, it, you know, there wasn't power to look at total mortality. They were shocked that the total mortality went up. And I certainly wasn't powered to look at, you know, was it this form of cancer or, you know, lung disease? What was the cause? They couldn't find it. And in fact, the, the cause of death went up. In, in, in all the different categories that they looked at, but the numbers were too small to make any judgments about it. And a wise editorialist said, we've never seen anything that raises your death rate in, in every, from every cause except for poverty, right? But I mean, this is a randomized trial. It, it, it was a total mystery. But then they looked very carefully at the following cholesterol studies to see about this total mortality question. Uh, and, and they kept not really having a good answer to it. And then statins came along. And so the question was, now that we have statins and we can really lower cholesterol, is it safe? An important question. So all that LLT was designed to figure that out. It's the only study that I'm going to give you that was supported by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. All the rest of them are, are industry studies. Um, actually, one of them is the, the Canadian government was involved along with industry, so I don't want to hammer that point too hard. But all LLT came out of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and they finally were going to answer the major questions. They were going to a huge study, and they were going to power it to, to, to look at total mortality, because the problem with the other studies was that they weren't powered to do that. And they were going to include all the people who hadn't been included before. A huge step forward. Bernadine, you know, George Bush Sr. appointed a woman to run the NIH, and all of a sudden women started getting included in the studies. Phenomenal step forward. And as a result of you know, what came from that, half the participants are women, and the fact that everybody had been a white middle-aged man was deemed not satisfactory, and they looked at people of different ethnicities, and they did long follow-up uh, for five years. And they found no effect, nothing, nothing. Not only did total mortality 
I mean, look at this number, right? The, the, the uh, all-cause mortality, uh, uh, it says relative, it should say hazard ratio, but uh, the approximation rate, 0.99. Can it get any closer to one? I mean, they basically have the same number of deaths uh, in both groups, the P of 0.88 would tell you. And even coronary events, although they, they did, you know, trend in the right direction, with a hugely powered study with lots of participants done for a long time, they, sh they couldn't achieve that usual standard of P less than 0.05. Uh, you know, again, my interpretation is that something's going on, but it's so, such a small effect that they still were underpowered and they, and they couldn't find it. What happened to this study? Most of you have never heard of it. It's not included. There's a little asterisk about it in the, if you dig through all the stuff from, from the ACC, AHA, why didn't they include that in their uh, analysis? Why didn't it get included from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force? Each one figured out a way to exclude it. You will never ever see a, you, I challenge you, find, ever find a study like this again. The introduction tells you the importance of all these questions that remain unanswered and, and why they would do a big study like this. And the conclusion says, don't believe a word of what we just showed. And they ascribe the fact that they got results like this to the fact that there was crossover. A lot of the people in the statin group ended up not taking the statin. A lot of people in the usual care group ended up getting prescribed a statin. And that messes up their ability to show anything. But they did have an LDL reduction of 17%. At that time, those of us who are old enough to remember, there was this huge discussion. For every 1% you lower cholesterol, what percent do you lower events, and so on. Uh, nobody knew what that meant, but they talked a lot about you know, that question. A 17% reduction in LDL might have maybe done something. But the fact that it didn't show a statistical significant result meant ignore the study. The, the authors of the study focused on this issue of crossover, that that's probably what was going on. And the editorialist, who was a former colleague of mine who ran the lipid clinic there and then went on to run it at another Boston hospital and now works for a drug company, uh, said ignore this study entirely. That was the party line about what to do, which may be correct. But, but that's, you know, again, from my point of view, what, what the story was. Crossover might have done it. Um, failed to show any benefit for anyone. And if you really want to get in there and parse, okay, it works, but they didn't have power to show it. The one thing they did to look at outcomes by sex, the men's had a result that was pretty close to the statistical significance and it looks plausible maybe it was power. The women had nothing at all. It was centered right at one whatever that means. So four out of the trials failed to meet the usual criteria. The one that met the criteria in some of the categories was that Jupiter study where they had a low LDL but had a high CRP, which if you know how to make sense of that and apply it to Ms. T, it would be great if you would tell me, uh, either because of low power or small benefit. But somehow they couldn't uh, you know, show that they were statistically significant. What's another conclusion? They, they didn't have enough women. Even though they had thousands of women and followed it's another version of, of the power statement. And then this business about clinical heterogeneity between the studies makes it hard to, to put them together because in mean, all this attempt to say, well, you know, you can answer this by meta-analysis. And maybe you can, maybe you can't. But you could see why it would be problematic. Uh, in this circumstance. She didn't meet any of the inclusion criteria. And again, these uh, people got into the trials because they were at higher risk, because they had multiple risk factors, and therefore more opportunity uh, to have events. 
So we're back to this thing about the question. Is the question at what level of uh, risk in their calculator uh, is it appropriate to deem the evidence sufficient to say a statin should be given? Well, if you assume that a statin helps and you assume that it doesn't do any harm, again, of course you would. That's to me, is the real question. How much benefit, how much harm? I'm going to take you off into a, another space for a, for a quick moment. And this is the hypothetical situation where you have in front of you a, a smart economist and you say to her, would you be willing to take some money to jump out a window? So what are the two questions that she would want the answer to before she decides whether to take your offer? What floor? How much money? It's not how high is the window, and it's not how much money. What is it really? This is not a, this is not a trick. This is for real. Well, why are you asking? Why am I asking? Because I'm going to take you there in just a moment. So what she wants to know is, ah, when do I get the money? And when do I have to jump? Because if the answer is you get the money right now and you have to jump in a thousand years, she doesn't care how much money. Right? And we, as doctors, who think with our patients and try to make decisions all the time with them, forget about time. Time. Primary prevention, it's time. It's you're doing something now for a benefit that might occur later. And thinking about time is something that we neglect at our peril. That smart economist knew all about time. When do I get the money and when do I have to jump? So here's something about time. This is where we're going to parse this 8.2% risk that we got out of the calculator. Remember, it's not 8.2% risk. It's 8.2% risk in 10 years. Why did we pick 10 years? Well, 10 years is essential to Ms. T's biology because we have 10 fingers, so we use a decimal system. And a year is how long it takes the Earth to go around the sun. <laughs> if, you parse the, if you parse the 10 years, Right, as I've done here in this sort of life table kind of arrangement, you know what happens. At 67, she's not at higher risk as she is at 77. So that 10-year risk is a bunch of yearly risks or whatever interval you want to use, and you add them up. And what happens is that if you do a number needed to treat calculation, if you reduce the risk by around 20%, which is most of what those women's studies show, if you believe it really does help women, you would find that in that first year you'd have to treat 1,000 women to find one where you're going to help her. Of course, if you go back to the under-the-microscope slide in those first few years, you really didn't help anybody. This is assuming that it would be 20% every year. This is just a rough way of showing you that the risk goes up over time. So the benefit that you would expect, therefore, goes up over time, because you have to have the possibility of an event to have the possibility of a benefit, which is your reduction, that you might have events. But it's more complicated than that, because the risk estimator is wrong. It's been shown repeatedly that when, the, when they say the risk is 8.2%, it's really probably closer to 4.1%. It's twice as high. The risk calculator came from a very good reason. They said, we're using Framingham risk score all over the place. Well, Framingham, you know, that's 5,209 you know, white people who live in a Boston suburb. Not so great to generalize to all your patients based on them. Let's make a more representative calculator that brings in populations from different kinds of people from all over the country, a very important thing to do. But what they forgot about 
when they did this was that the rate of coronary disease has been going down and down and down in this country. So if you take one of these cohorts from 20 years ago, you're going to have rates that are much too high when you extrapolate those to today. And when people looked at this calculator and tried to apply it to more contemporary populations, they found that the estimate was approximately twice as high as it should be. So if you go back to that 8.2 and you cut it down to 4.1, now, of course, it's half as much risk. There's going to be half as much benefit in that first year instead of you know, having to treat 1,000 people if it really worked, which it won't in the first year. You're going to have to treat 2,000. Right? And so this number needed to treat, which looked pretty impressive. I mean, 60 number needed to treat doesn't look so bad for primary prevention. 59 of the people wouldn't get any. Well, that's just because you add it up over 10 years. The more years you add in, the lower the number needed to treat. You know, in this country, about a third of us uh, right now are going to, we're, we're all going to die. Hate to tell us when we're thinking about primary prevention, or we act as if we could just keep going forever. We're all going to die. In this country, about a third of us are going to die of coronary disease. Right? If we're lucky enough to get to some point where the coronary disease is going to get to us. So if you take that, the one in three, right, and then you make a number, what's the number you need to treat of one in three? Well, if one in five of those, if you have a 20% reduction in risk from the one in three, you know, three times, so you get a number needed to treat of one in 15. Everybody's going to have a number of treat of one in 15. All you have to do is assume that you're going to give this drug forever and it doesn't do any harm, it only does good. We can deceive people with a good number needed to treat just by hypothetically making the length of time we want to do this longer and longer. It's a spurious number. It would be much better if you're going to think that number needed to treat is an important comparison to make. You have to define the time interval and compare the same time to the same time. This is, this is a way of making it look much better than it is. It's a way of powerfully showing something that might, shown a different way, not look quite as powerful. These are projections, right? That's a 10-year risk. The longest study only went on for six years. Is this evidence? Well, if you consider that evidence, it's evidence. But, but we're sort of drilled into us that here's the trials, you know, 19 trials, this and that. This is the evidence-based recommendation. If you consider this evidence, it's evidence. But remember, the, most of the benefits that are projected to occur, remember that smart economists, are going to happen toward the end past the time that we've even ever studied. I, I think it's probably legitimate. I mean, I don't think there's any reason to think statins are going to turn off their effectiveness after six years. But, but we should at least know what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. That's the evidence that we have that this is going to help. Uncertainty about risk produces uncertainty about benefits, because the higher risk people are, the more opportunity they are, because they're expected to have events, to therefore uh, have those events prevented. Uh, and as I said, happening many years in the future. So if the benefit, if you would buy the argument that the benefit is actually quite small, you, you, you couldn't even find it in these high, you know, long studies with large numbers of people, if it's that small, is it crazy to say, wait a minute, if I had a concern about risk or trouble, it might make a statin a bad bargain, right? That's what we want to do with our patients is from the patient's perspective, when are the benefits greater than the harms? Is there any chance that there could be any harm from statins? And there's been all this obsessing about diabetes because of Jupiter. I don't want to go there. 
I mean, we think of diabetes at its definition, you know, if your hemoglobin A1C is 6.4, you don't have it. If it's 6.5, you do. If you have anything that just nudges the, 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 the glucose up a little bit, you're going to have more dia diabetes. Is that diabetes? I don't know. I, I'm not concerned about that. What about the muscle aches? It's really hard. They do these studies with run-in periods and so on, and there's so much muscle ache among people who think they might be getting a statin. Hard to know. I certainly believe it. I have lots of patients where they get muscle aches and you stop their statin, it goes away, and you give it back, and they get it again. I mean, this end of one study business is pretty convincing in situations like that. But, but it's been hard to show with the trial. There's a huge focus to what's the number to treat, what's the number you to harm, how many cases of diabetes, when you won against the other. That's apples and oranges. That's a foolish way to decide. The concern is if you were to give this drug to women for years and years and years, might it do any mischief? Right? Isn't that the concern? Well, we know what these drugs do, right? I mean, Brown and Goldstein won the Nobel Prize in the 90s. They figured out the LDL receptor. They figured out the metabolism of cholesterol. They found out the rate-limiting step was HMG-CoA reductase. They figured out a drug to block it. I mean, you, you can't do any better than that. It is like, and then when they use those drugs when people had heart attacks, they have fewer heart attacks. It's like next case, right, that's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. But look what happens. It turns out these statins, they don't just block HMG-CoA-reductase. They do something about inflammation. They do something about thrombosis. They do something about endothelial function. They do something about immunity and bone metabolism, have CNS effects. So can we assume that we know everything that they do and that it just so happens that everything that they do is good for you? Maybe. What about care? So CARE is a secondary prevention trial uh, from the 90s, noteworthy because they finally started to have some women in the trial. Not very many, but they had a few women, finally. And they gave them a statin. Cholesterol and recurrent events is CARE. So these are, this is, well, cardiologists call it secondary prevention. You might call it tertiary, but anyhow, it's people who had events, and now can you prevent future events. What happened in CARE? Breast cancer, 12 people who got the statin got breast cancer. One person who got the placebo got breast cancer. This was of great concern. They finally had a study with women, and this is what they found. P of less than 0.002. Two chances in a 1,000 that results like this could come from chance alone. Extremely frightening. What did the investigators do? They knew that they were in a race with the people who were doing another study. Lipid. More women. 1,500. Same drug, same statin, pravastatin, same dose, 20 milligrams. And luckily, in lipid, they, they broke the code. They called the people running lipid, and they said, oh, my God, we're seeing breast cancer. You know, finally got some women in the study, and it looks like we're causing breast cancer. You know, look at your data right away. And they did. They looked at their data right away, and they said, you know what? We have many more women in our study. We've seen absolutely no signal of breast cancer, none whatsoever. And when the study was over, they, they got 10 cases of breast cancer in the statin group, 10 cases of, of, uh, of breast cancer in the placebo group. And, and the, the, the take-home message and written up in the, in the result of the CARE study and also in the lipid study was, we don't need to worry about it. And I think, I mean, I don't know about breast cancer and statins, but, but it's a little reminder that we don't really know. And I would say my own take on all of this is that 
with such a tiny benefit among people who are so unlikely to have events and then so unlikely to divide, to divide, uh, to uh, receive a benefit if we treat them, where we're not even positive that they're going to get that benefit, that it is reasonable to worry that we may be doing some mischief. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's breast cancer. I really, I'm just talking about the theoretical risk now knowing that statins do all sorts of things that we don't know about. Are we really that comfortable that we know that they can't hurt people that we're okay giving them to, you know, 70 million Americans, which is what we would do if we followed those ACC AHA recommendations? Should we be surprised that this is where we are, that, the, that this is where we've come to in American medicine? We're doctors, and we spent a lot of time learning about mechanisms. And that story of statins and where they come from and HMG reductase and that, it is so powerful. And even though we know that it's not true anymore and we believe Peter Libby and, 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 and you know, it's not simply a matter of this waxy substance gradually blocking your coronary arteries until it blocks off the flow and then you get an MI. We know the biology of atherosclerosis is much more complicated than that. But we all carry this notion that, well, shouldn't you start early and wouldn't it be nice to stop that cholesterol from going into the wall and causing the plaque and so on. It, it's, it's, a, it's really compelling. And we like to think that way. We're taught that if we can understand the mechanism, and, and I don't want to denigrate it. The, uh, that is one of the unbelievable privileges we have as physicians, is to study mechanisms and understand them so we have a sophisticated enough notion of biology that we can make reasonable conclusions with our patients. Knowing about mechanism is crucial. But this mechanism and the power of it, I suggest, might influence us possibly unduly to think that we know what's going on. And that, that slide that says there are a lot of these so-called, you know, I always get pleiotropic and pleomorphic mixed up because <laughs> the tropism of those statins, they're going to all these other places we didn't plan on. But it's the pleomorphic effect that it does all these other things. Do we really know all that? To me, that's the thing that we have to take as well as this. Um, so we like trials. Right? But we have to look at them critically and questioning and be skeptical about them because that's what, I'm not a scientist. I'm a primary care doctor and a medical educator. But I've learned that science is very powerful and science is the reason why our patients ought to trust us instead of an astrologer. Right? But what's science? Science is actually hard to define, but some smart people have said science is something that has two characteristics that are really important. One is that you adopt a skeptical questioning attitude, that you try to question everything. That's what scientists do. And the other is that you rigorously look at the data, right, with that questioning attitude. And I'm suggesting to you, when you do that, you might be in a different place than somehow what has gotten to us. When results show up like this in journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, I think that's trouble for us, that somehow showing things this way uh, if we're looking at it quickly, as many of us do, can confuse us. And I'm not going to read it to you, but here's the AHRQ summary of how we've doubled the number of people on statins in this country. And in little print up there, it's going to tell you that uh, we're spending more than $20 billion on statins uh, in this country every year. Your tax money was hard at work uh, in the last couple of decades uh, doing the big dig in Boston where I live. I'm privileged that I get to drive to the airport a little faster than I used to. It was, I think, the most uh, expensive construction project, at least at that time, in the history of the world, or at least of the country. You know how much the big dig cost? 
cost $15 billion. It took about 20 years to spend that money. In this country, we spend $20 billion on statins every year. Does that have anything to do with where we are in this? You know as much about that, and many of the audience know much more about that than I do, but uh, that's where I'm about to end. Martin Luther King did not say that the arc of history bends toward justice. He said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Right, that, that's an important distinction. Winston Churchill did not say that Americans can always be counted on to do the right thing after they've exhausted every alternative. Right. right. And here's what Mark Twain, Will Rogers, and neither Mark Twain, Will Rogers, nor Satchel Page actually said. And I'd like to end with this thought, which is, it ain't what I don't know that gets me into trouble. It's what I do know that ain't so. Thank you very much. Five minutes for a couple of questions. Questions from? And I'll try to tell a story at the end. Yes, John. Uh, I, 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 I love this, uh, this, this talk. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, as, um, as also a, a generalist uh, in my uh, presentations, I'm someone who pays uh, uh, a lot of attention to EDM principles. Um, I've always been struck, and I'd like your thoughts about this. Uh, the kind of irreducible conundrum that uh, a randomized controlled trial results cannot be applied to individual patients. I think that's a truism that makes everyone so uncomfortable that they won't uh, really uh, uh, you know, say it out loud. So how does, because you're an individual practitioner, but aware of the larger pictures here, how do you sleep at night knowing that that's true? Yeah. Could people in the back hear the question? No. Yes. So the question is, is somebody who, and help me if I didn't get it right, if somebody who pays careful attention to evidence-based medicine wants to do it properly, how do you deal with the fact that in, the results of these big trials cannot be directly applied to individual patients? And I think it's a big struggle. It's the, it's the information we have. As, as a generalist, you know that we always wish we had better information than we do. Ours is, is the, they talk about the art of medicine, and they talk about it like that's communication interviewing. And I think that that's not as much an art as a learned skill uh, from people like Dan Corcoran, who, when I see people from Dartmouth, tell me how much they learn from her. I think what it is is we struggle, and we say we don't know, but that's an incredibly important guide. It's one of the best guides we have. We know things about mechanism. That's part of what guides us. We sort of stand on those two legs of what we know about mechanism and what we learn from trials as a sort of check on the mechanism understanding, and we struggle to try to do it. I, how do I sleep at night? I was trained as a house officer, and I learned how to go to sleep anywhere. <laughs> I, I don't mean to be glib about it. it, it it's, it's a very hard issue. It's, it's at the heart of the struggle of how we do this job. And, and I don't have any, I suspect you have a better answer than I do. I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Brooke. Um, so I have a, a comment and a question. The comment is that in my day-to-day -day practice, I'm primary care, the bad news is I run that calculator about a bazillion times a week. Services task force and that, that like I have to go find 
I, I should have said this when I mentioned their work. I am a huge fan of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. I think they are the best source we have for what we should do in the realm of prevention. I'm disappointed with them in this. We can all quibble about this and that, but I think they are light years. I mean, if you look at, at by specialty group, reliably, you know, the cardiologists are going to tell us to be more aggressive about blood pressure and cholesterol. The American Thoracic Society is going to tell us to treat more people with positive PPDs. The American Diabetes Association is going to tell us to find more people and label them. The specialty groups live in the numerator, and we live in the denominator. And the task force is much more representative of the kind of approach that we have. Uh, so I, I think they're the most trustworthy group out there. Uh, 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 do I agree with everything they've said, and can you really look in depth at everything they do? You can't do that. I mean, I have the advantage that I sit in a journal club in my residence, which I've done for 30 years, which is how I've learned all this stuff. Um, and so we look at a lot of it, but I think as a, as a, if you're going to take a quick, what am I going to trust, I think the task force is a phenomenal place to go and, and believe what they have to tell us. One quick question. If not, I will. I don't see it. Uh, yeah, sure, Brian. Some of this strikes me as like, what can you do if you went to a financial advisor to invest money? Um, if you go there, the first thing you do is have to fill a questionnaire on your risk averseness. Like, what, what's risky for you, flying in a wingsuit or trying a new restaurant? You know, we don't know. So basically what I think you said this morning is we have no idea but I was just thinking with Gil in the front seat, I'm 60, should I get a PSA? And now, no matter what the evidence shows, it comes down to what the patient wants, what's the risk averseness over the, you know, some people, one in a million is, that's reasonable to take the risk, and some people, you know, one in 10 is too much. So. This is such a hard issue, right? I mean, we're getting to issues of numeracy and do people really understand, I mean, you know, go to, into some poor neighborhoods and see how many people are lined up getting ripped off buying lottery tickets, how well the under right. people understand. This is a really tough thing. And as part of the job ours to say, look, in situations like yours, the chance that this could help you is so really low that I'm worried. And to say, I mean, as a practitioner today in America, I think you have to say, experts in the Heart Association and the U.S. Tell us what to do. Here's what they say, but here's why I have some concerns about it. I think when people hear that, I mean, my patients all say, I talk to them about this, as you might imagine, you know, we get into this, and they say, yeah. what they say is, why, why don't we talk about this again next year, doctor? <laughs> right? And, and given these kind of numbers, I think I'm not really smart. endangering them too much to let them go home that way. Smart, smart patients. So we should, we should wrap up to be respectful of people's time. But I want to end with a story explaining what, exactly why he gets that hat that says support the null hypothesis. So a first-year instructor at Harvard Medical School appointed in both departments, departments of preventive medicine and in medicine, um, and he publishes his first article on this, and the chairman of the Department of Preventive Medicine tries to get him fired from Harvard Medical School because he was questioning the lipid hypothesis. And that was Alexander Leaf, who many of us hold as one of our icons of, of uh, medicine. Uh, and it is hard when you believe something so strongly that, of course, it's going to help people. And Bill is brave enough to ask those questions. So thank you for coming and joining thank us. Thank you.